Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Today I'm pleased to welcome Agatha Siwale Mulenga. Agatha is currently a research collaborator for the Resource Nationalism in Southern Africa Partnership Project. Her research interests are in natural resource governance, politics, public policy, and institutional change in developing country contexts. She has specifically analyzed the interaction between formal and informal institutions and how this shapes outcomes for artisanal small-scale miners. She published papers on the limits of formalization in small-scale mining, the dynamic of collective action in artisanal small-scale mining, and gender dynamics in ASM in Zambia, her home country. Agatha has also had lecturing positions at institutions in the Netherlands, Germany, and Zambia, where she has also taught a variety of courses in public policy and governance. Agatha, it's a pleasure to meet you and speak with you today. Thank you very much, Sheila. It's a privilege to be on the podcast, and I'm excited that we can do this. Zambia is the sovereign equivalent uh, in the region of a poster child for resource nationalism. So could you start by just helping us appreciate the difference between resource nationalism and resource nationalization? Thank you for that question, Sheila. So briefly stated, resource nationalism refers to governments seeking to exert control over their extractive sectors through a set of policies, which are discretionary policies aimed at ensuring that the revenues from mining are are better channeled to the country, either for economic benefit or for political benefit. Whereas uh, resource nationalization refers to the process through which governments take over the ownership or control of a private company and it becomes a state-owned company or partially state-owned. So would you be correct then to say Uh, Resource nationalism is about creating an environment in which the state sees itself uh, increasing economic benefits, whereas nationalization is really about state ownership and state directly owning and managing the resources. For a lay person, would that be about right? That would be exactly right. So you have uh, resource nationalism being this broader concept, which might involve direct and indirect interventions into the extractive industry, but nationalization being this more direct takeover, yes, uh, as you have put it. So ownership is is something one can uh, comprehend. I wonder whether you could give us examples of how, in the absence of ownership, resource nationalism manifests itself. All right, thank you for that question. Yes, so it, uh, apart from, from ownership, resource nationalism uh, can be seen in the trends towards governments, for instance, influencing tax policy. And so on one hand, they might not be owners or take over ownership of a company, but then through tax policy, they may, may seek to extract greater revenues from the mining sector. So you might see an increase in the percentage that they demand uh, in terms of mining mineral royalties, and they might raise the the mineral royalty or corporate taxes in order to secure uh, greater revenues from the sector. They might also uh, engage in 
uh, aspects relating to regulation where they, they want to more closely monitor the sector. Uh, in Zambia, for instance, this took, took up the, an example can be given of the mining uh, value chain monitoring program where they tried to ensure that production was more closely monitored and there was uh, a sense in which the government could have more official statistics of what was going on in the sector. Uh, this was supposed to help them uh, avoid cases where they felt that the, the companies were under-reporting. And so they, they came in to ensure that there was greater control by increasing their transparency and their information. So regulation is, uh, is another way, and also enhancing the developmental spillovers from the mining sector. So this might take the, the, the form of production linkages, ensuring that the mining sector, for instance, if there's copper mining going on, how does it link to increasing uh, uh, the productivity of the manufacturing sector by say, uh, ensuring that uh, mining supply is being stimulated through, through the extractive process. So you might find that certain inputs of the mining process uh, start to be produced locally and the government requires that the, the mining companies purchase supplies from them. So those are, uh, are just some of the, the main ways in which resource nationalism manifests. Hmm. So uh, a couple of things. I mean, when one thinks of uh... Uh, resource nationalism then what comes to mind as you speak is a really a plethora of uh, interventions uh, by the state uh, and, and in the case of Zambia you've referenced for instance the auditing of uh, copper exports to ensure that in fact what the companies uh, declare in terms both of the volume and value uh, is correct uh, but the resource nationalization is a different issue because to your point, we have seen both ends of uh, that spectrum. And I'm wondering when you look at uh, uh, Zambia, we have moved from outright nationalization to resource nationalism. What does this change in terms of policy tell us? Is it because uh, we have found resource nationalization not sufficiently effective, or is it just because we are indulging the views of uh, international development agencies, but that you know, Zambia's primary uh, goal is for the state to have an even greater role than we see today? I think it's a bit of both, Sheila. I think. Uh... Uh, to, to one degree, there's a sense in which resource nationalization was attempted quite uh, drastically in the 1970s under President Kaunda, in which he nationalized um, a lot of companies, over, over 28 major companies were nationalized and a lot of smaller retail companies post-independence. And uh, from that, there was a sense in which uh, there were a lot of international factors that led to the failure of the policy and Zambia ending up in, in a debt crisis. So there was an oil crisis and then later on uh, the government had to borrow a lot of money just to stay afloat. But then there was also mismanagement of the assets. So in that, in that regard, the government was taking out a lot of cash and using it for social programs, but not reinvesting in the, in the mining assets. And so we come to the 1990s where it was the, 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 the country was on its knees economically, and 
there was a realization that nationalization really did not yield the benefits that were initially imagined. And so from experience, there was a failure in that regard. But to your second point, there, were, there was also international pressure. Zambia was going to institutions like the World Bank and the IMF seeking, uh, seeking economic help. And in order to get that loan financing from these institutions, they had uh, the structural adjustment programs, which required that the country go into uh, privatization and liberalization of the economy. So it was a bit of both in terms of how Zambia has take, tended to perceive nationalization versus, uh, versus a broader nationalism. But what we see even post privatization and the, the difficulties that came in then uh, is that uh, resource nationalism lives on, it might not take the form of nationalization, but then we see the, these programs uh, around uh, ensuring that this, uh, the, the value chain is such that it incorporates Zambians. So there's an indigenous uh, element ensuring that, that benefits go to Zambians that there's an attempt to develop the local economy. And also uh, more importantly, the tax regime seeking to extract as much as possible. I mean, it, it, a lot of what you, you have described in terms of uh, uh, interventions by the Zambian authorities is fairly straightforward, which is essentially stewarding the uh, resources of the country and regulating investors. In, in that respect, uh, there is absolutely nothing untoward, at least from my point of view. But mm -hmm. you do make a point that uh, having nationalized assets something went wrong. And you describe that as mismanagement, uh, including failure to plow back, uh, you know, proceeds into sustaining the mining infrastructure. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you get the sense that there has been a genuine introspection on the part of policymakers such that as we move forward, uh, we balance the, the, continuous, the continuous uh, desire to maximize value with a better institutional capacity to foster those ideas. Do you think uh, that we've crossed that bridge or is, do you think there might still be a risk that 30 years from now, our grandchildren might be having this conversation? That's, that's a really interesting question. I think there has been a, a sense in which even uh, the Kaunda uh, government itself, which which was a driver of nationalization, came to the realization that we had capacity limitations. So, in terms of uh, uh, capital uh, capital investment, in terms of the skills and know how and uh, the technological aspects, there was th there has been a, a recognition that we are not where we ought to be in terms of these uh, elements. So, we we see how that even as far back as the, the 1970s, the government began to prioritize these joint ventures to ensure that foreign direct investment was coming in. And uh, there was uh, a sense of relying on this foreign direct investment to minimize the, the government's risk and ensure that uh, capital was coming in from, from partners. So post, post that period uh, and coming to privatization where there's been a wholesale takeover of these mines uh, by, uh, by foreign investors. There has been a sense in which the reliance upon foreign capital, I think, has, has, has become quite entrenched. And uh, looking forward, 
I think the tendency towards nationalization might probably be, be lessened at, at, at this point um, in terms of having experienced the, the failures of it. Uh, and not just here in Zambia, but uh, world over, um, there seems to be a consensus that the, the state should limit its, um, its participation in the, in the market and, and allow the private sector to, uh, to, to be the one directly involved in the market. Whereas the, the state creates this supportive regulatory, uh, uh, regulatory environment that allows for mining companies to thrive. However, in, if the, in the instance that uh, the country builds capacity, and is able to grow up its industries such that there is a reduced reliance on foreign capital. Even there, the, I would think that the, the intuition would not be to nationalize, but rather to have the growth of private industries that are, uh, are locally owned, that, that are domestically owned by, by the citizens themselves versus national, nationalizing uh, the industries. So yes, I think there's a sense in which uh, privatization seems to have won the day. But even in, in developed countries, we find that for crucial industries, the state also chooses to retain a stake. Uh, a stake. So for the sensitive uh, uh, industries, it might also be that the, the state chooses to retain some, some direct oversight there. But in general, uh, the market forces should be allowed to, to operate and have been shown to be the most, uh, most effective. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm glad you qualify your statement by saying uh, the lessons learned from resource nationalization, though may uh, suggest a shift from that, that is not to be misconstrued for the state folding its hand. Because to be fair, I think the point you make about the capacity to manage is critical. Because if you look at uh, other sectors in different parts of the world, like oil in the Gulf. These are state-run entities and they're doing well. Mm -hmm. So my sense mm -hmm. is, Agatha, is that the, the real problem is not what policies uh, a country pursues, but it is one, uh, the capacity to then implement that policy and migrate it from the, if you wish, political aspirational space to the institutional implementation, uh, corporate management space. I think that what I see in countries that don't make that transition, you see a lot of failure, but countries that make a direct link between control capacity uh, to manage uh, generally do better. And, and so I, I don't quarrel with ideology, but I do quarrel with delivery. And I think we, we mm -hmm. ought to make a distinction. Now, whether ideologically certain things cannot be delivered is, is another matter entirely. But certainly in terms of state ownership, there is sufficient proof that companies mm -hmm. owned and managed by the state, uh, such as uh, Saudi Aramco, the Qataris with their gas uh, corporation, and, and the list is long. Uh, yeah. you, see, you, see, you see success. But, but uh, that brings me to my second uh, or, or, or observation with respect to the limitations of uh, resource nationalization. You know, some people who are critical of this see them not so much as economic policy uh, based concepts, but rather just political uh, posturing that there is a certain um, way in which 
this speaks to the gallery mm -hmm. and serves the politicians, but that there is really no political will to do the right thing, which is why we end up where we are. I mean, what do we know about that just generally? You know, what is the connection between politics and resource nationalism uh, versus economics? Okay, thank you for that question. So indeed there has been research that has argued that there, there's what is termed, what can be termed as the resource uh, nationalism cycle, uh, which is driven largely by political demands. So you'll have a situation where uh, a, country, a country's government is placed under pressure from its public, uh, which, which is something that happened in Zambia in the early 2000s, following privatization, there was a feeling that uh, uh, the tax, uh, the tax on mining companies and the tax holidays that had been given were overly generous, such that the government was getting only 0.6% uh, tax from uh, from these companies uh, in terms of uh, royalties, and uh, it was felt that there was more that needed to to be done to extract. Uh, uh, extract revenues from the sector. And so you find civil society organizations mounted a lot of pressure on the government. And eventually you find uh, the Mwanawasa government having uh, instituted higher higher royalty rates, higher corporate tax at 30% uh, at from 25%. And so you, you, you see that direct link between the political dynamics and uh, the government wishing to satisfy political demands in view of uh, electoral cycles. So I think there is definitely uh, a sense in which that is supported uh, by, the, uh, by the literature, and also a sense in which, like the uh, um, an article by Nami for Nami, for instance, uh, points out how that uh, it is with certain political systems, such as hybrid governments, which ha which are to some degree democratic but have weak state institutions. So they have regular elections, but have uh, weak uh, state institutions, which are usually centralized and uh, and control. Uh, seek to control revenues as well. So uh, yes, as to whether economic outcomes are not a goal, I think the, the message, the outcomes there are a bit mixed as well. I think with certain political leaders, we have, uh, we have seen real difficulties in terms of the state's capacity to monitor uh, foreign direct investment. And so that's why we see them coming in and wanting to take over the asset themselves. And uh, in that sense, they are seeking to uh, localize uh, the, the revenue outcomes. Uh, I'll go back to, to President Kaunda, for instance, and the way in which in his material reforms, his concern was that, that uh, foreign investors were repatriating 80% of their profits and reinvesting very little in the, in the country. And so he sought to control this. And uh, the nationalization of that time did lead to certain socioeconomic programs uh, such as uh, 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 more public expenditure in health and education. So in that, in, in that sense, you, you see the, the socioeconomic uh, dynamics coming in and the government really wanting to see a boost in the, in the foreign exchange uh, levels and uh, greater investment coming into the economy and growing the, the economy. So I think the, there can be, depending on the, the political system and the leaders, uh, there's, there's, there, there can be that, uh, that economic drive as well to see the, the government get more from, from the resource sector. But uh, yes, it's, a, it's really a mixed picture because as you said, uh, state-owned companies have 
uh, have been successful and uh, examples are given of uh, like Angola's uh, state-owned oil company, Sanango, and how that uh, it's, it was uh, evaluated to have improved its capacity to the point where it was negotiating international uh, contracts. But then in terms of the spillovers, uh, the benefits were mainly centralized by these by politicians, and this has been seen in countries like Nigeria as well. So it's uh, it's really a mixed bag uh, as to whether whether the, the the benefits are purely political and monopolized by the elites, or whether some of the the benefits are also really uh, an aim to get out of debt, which which I think uh, is also a, a legitimate goal for some governments. Mm. Yeah, I think your your reading of the issue is correct because I think. You are struggling, uh, I guess the politicians are struggling between what they intuitively know their constituents expect of them, but also potentially what they know intellectually and from a policy perspective is the right thing to do in terms of regulation, uh, stabilizing the investment environment, being competitive, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess there's a level at which sometimes the problem is trying to to really balance that tension. And, and, and if you swing too far on the political side, then you offend the multilateral and international development finance institutions. If you swing mm -hmm. too far uh, towards those, then you offend your electorate. And, and my sense watching uh, African countries and others for that matter that haven't struck that balance is that it is finding that balance that is so critical. But I, I did want to move on to artisanal small-scale mining. I mean, yes. what do we know about the interface between resources, nationalism, and artisanal small-scale mining? Right. Uh, I think this is an important question because uh, the artisanal, artisanal and small-scale mining sector tends to be overlooked in such debates and there's need for greater research uh, on, on, on the links uh, in this area. Uh, but what we currently know, I think, is uh, uh, a sense in which resource nationalism can take two forms. Uh, we, we mentioned that resource nationalism incorporates a component of ownership, and this ownership might be uh, in the form of nationalization of state ownership. But uh, in my opinion, I think it also takes the form of uh, ownership being restructured or ownership being uh, directed towards uh, national nationals and uh, citizens owning uh, productive assets. So uh, in, the, in, in the regard of ownership, there's a sense in which certain legislation has moved towards uh, restricting or infencing certain types of mining, such as small-scale mining, to, to citizens. So in, in, in the Zambian Mining Code, for instance, artisanal and small-scale mining licenses can only be given to, to Zambian-owned uh, companies. And this is uh, pursued from the perspective of, of trying to ensure that the benefits of the resources go back to the Zambian nationals. And so it has a nationalistic element to it in that, in that regard. However, in terms of uh, the other dimension of it, where the state itself desires to exert control over the sector, but artisanal and small-scale mining is seen as a disruption and, and a hindrance to the state, the central state exerting control, then you see a more conflictual relationship uh, with artisanal and small-scale mining. Uh, and uh, this may take the form of the government banning small-scale mining activities, 
and uh, taking quite a punitive approach towards uh, the activity. So it can be resource nationalism can represent itself, I think, in, in either a supportive or an, a confrontational or adversarial kind of way. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, uh, what you're saying is on one hand, some governments take the view that it can foster, uh, if you wish, economic development and access to resources by citizens and therefore re-fences it as the exclusive reserve of citizens. And, and mm -hmm. then in that way, it's seen as part of the, uh, if you wish, the progressive nature of resource nationalism. But on the other hand, where governments see themselves as exercising control and having order, to the extent that uh, mechanized large-scale mining is orderly, can be pinpointed, you have laws, this, this and the other. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that uh, additional small-scale mining doesn't lend itself, if you wish, to that orderliness and direct control, governments mm -hmm. feel vulnerable and feel that it, it, it's a, if you wish, it's a detractor from an, a, a, a setup in which they see order. And in that way, you know, they tend to want to either ban it or simply illegalize in, in some form. Where does Zambia sit in that balance at the moment? Well, at the moment we sit at a point where a bit of both of what I've described have taken place. So on one hand, the government, the, both the present government and the previous uh, government have been supportive of artisanal and small scale mining. And their support usually tends to waver based on what's happening in the copper mining sector, because copper mining is the, is the, the mainstay of Zambia's economy. So when copper prices are down, then, then the government looks for other economic activities, other, uh, other minerals that could support the economy. And so ASM has risen on the agenda uh, during these times when copper prices had had slumped in previous years, and so in in that regard, uh, a lot of the artisanal and small scale miners in Zambia are formalized, which is different from the wider experience across sub-Saharan Africa, where they tend to be illegal. For most for, for most of our small scale miners, uh, about seventy percent, they do hold title to their their claims. Which, which is a plus on the Zambian side. And uh, the government in the previous national development plans has even moved towards trying to ensure that there's greater support to, to the actors in the sector, although the extent to which that has materialized uh, is, uh, is a bit limited. But then in terms of this uh, formalization that has taken place uh, in, uh, in the small scale mining, so, so in terms of responding to the, the miners, it might be an outright ban, but then it might also be formalization as it took place in Zambia, where even the titling is a means of the state controlling the sector. So in the, in the 1980s, when emerald mining, for instance, first began, it was by these small scale actors who used pigs and shovels to extract uh, emeralds, which were just alluvial emeralds. And uh, the mining activity there rose quite significantly, uh, mainly by the small scale miners. And the government had little control over it because there were all sorts of actors involved and they were failing to, to capture control. So as you said, they felt that uh, a large scale enterprise would be more effective. And so they set up a state owned uh, enterprise uh, in, uh, to, to handle that, uh, that, that, uh, that degree of activity. And so they initially banned the activity set up a state-owned uh, joint venture 
which is now Kajem, which is uh, jointly owned with the multinational. And after they had secured the most mineral rich areas, they then opened it up to the small scale miners and then issued licenses to areas which were not surveyed, which had little economic potential, but in order to satisfy the demands uh, of the small scale miners and uh, political pressure, they give them licenses which, which are essentially not very useful and have not yielded any benefits. So it has been a combination in that regard because they appeared supportive by giving them licenses, but have since not provided support in terms of uh, financial support. They, they don't have uh, um, state support in terms of access to machinery, even though this has been called for, access to geological services have been limited, and uh, even access to credit, uh, uh, both from the government or from the private sector has been limited. So in this regard, there's been a satisfaction of a public demand to hold a license, but no follow-up support and rather the state continues to enjoy its greatest benefits from its joint ventures with multinationals, both in the emerald sector and in, in the amethyst sector. Hmm. So uh, here, <laughs> somebody struck the right political, uh, if you wish, balance. But really, yes. if you follow uh, the goals of resource socialization from an economic perspective and from uh, a wealth sharing perspective with citizens, we, we come short uh, because the interventions from what you're saying uh, in terms of citizen participation are somewhat superficial, but they are much more meaningful if you look at the state's own uh, participation as a shareholder uh, operating this uh, emerald deposit with uh, a, a foreign investor. So, so, so there you could say the politicians have struck the right balance, whether or not uh, it is sustainable in the long run uh, is another matter. I like Indeed. that you reminded us of the distinction between artisanal small scale mining and illegal. I also like that you reminded us that artisanal mining can be regulated and formalized and licensed with uh, proper concessions and that it doesn't have to be the messy images that we see in publications, because I think there we do artisanal small scale mining as a subsistence econ economic activity injustice. A am I correct? I think that is uh, very true because, uh, the, uh, and the failure to distinguish between the two has been actually a driver behind uh, certain punitive policies. Because if you lump every all the small scale miners uh, into the illegal group, then you really fail to, to see those who are legitimately seeking to earn uh, a living and have gone through uh, the right processes. So that, that is correct. There are some who do acquire permits and they, they mine based on that. So not everyone is doing it uh, illegally. So uh, if we think of resource nationalism then in the artisanal small-scale mining space as being the creation of regulations and the formalization of acquisition of concessions, uh, how in your observation does that positively impact uh, outcomes, economic and otherwise? I would like to say that it has beautiful positive impacts, but unfortunately, uh, my my interaction with the small scale miners in Zambia is uh, is otherwise. So on one hand, the theory, uh, the literature says that, uh, and and even the literature has come to contest this position that once you have a, a license, 
it opens up a lot of opportunities. You can go to the bank and on the basis of your mineral right, you can secure a loan and they'll accept that as collateral. Uh, you can also, you are also more recognizable by the state and, this, and so the state can come in and help order your operations in terms of uh, environmental requirements. There's, there can also be greater monitoring of, uh, of health and uh, safety uh, aspects and geological information, et cetera. But in reality, the outcomes of formalization, the license has not led to an opening up of access to finance in Zambia. The small scale miners are still perceived by the banks as highly risky. Uh, emerald mining, for instance, uh, is, is, is one which is a, a very expensive venture. And in order to carry out evaluations by the small scale miners, chemical analysis to, to demonstrate that there is, there is a great potential in terms of uh, uh, investment potential in a, in, in, a, in a mineral, right? It takes a lot of money to even just come up with a bankable document. So we find that that link between the license and access to finance has largely failed. Um, donors have come in over the years to try and provide financial support, but even the EU in the uh, in the late 2000s when they came in, uh, no, early 2000s, forgive me, uh, did require some sort of a bankable document. They required the, that the miners produce certain uh, assurances of the, the viability of their, their commercial enterprise. And the miners were not able to do this. You have to remember that these uh, artisanal miners are usually uh, uneducated uh, uh, individuals who who operate in the rural areas. And so in terms of uh, access to capital and finance uh, and even know-how uh, to meet the, the requirements, even of the, the bank, this, uh, this turned out to be a failure. So many of them were not able to access the finance. State support has been limited, partly due to capital, uh, um, to capacity limitations in the government where they, they lack um, the resources to go out and, and visit each of the, uh, the mining rights. So, Unfortunately, formalization has not led to the, the required, the, the desired impacts in the sector. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things I always uh, uh, have to remind myself when I'm engaging in conversation over artisanal small scale mining is that a huge number of the challenges are not really, are not mining issues per se. And, and, mm -hmm. and in your answer, what I'm hearing is the challenges that face small businesses, period. Uh, and that in this respect, artisanal small scale mining uh, is no exception. Uh, access to finance, access to technology, uh, the capacity to make a case for an investment uh, or a loan with a bank. So what you're really saying is sure, the state has uh, regulated, they've created, but what they haven't done is recognize that this peculiar uh, small business development uh, challenges, uh, you know, are still an impediment. And so with that, the outcomes are, are economically at least uh, suboptimal. So exactly. I, I wanted to ask you a last question. I mean, the political economy looms very large uh, in extractives and in um, large scale, or even medium scale mechanized mining, it tends to manifest itself in cronyism, um, rent seeking and other 
interventions that sort of benefit the political elite. I wanted to find out from you whether or not we have the same manifestation of the political economy in uh, artisanal small-scale mining, and if so, how it manifests. That's, that's a really good question, and it's, a, it's indeed a real problem. Uh, and I think it, it does manifest in different ways, even though at a, at a more micro level sometimes, but then also um, in terms of regulation not being comprehensive, not being, in terms of, for instance, the aspect I alluded to regarding state capital, state capacity, pardon me, to monitor the sector, state capacity to ensure that, that revenues that are coming from, from the sector are monitored and uh, the, the networks uh, of how money moves from points of, or minerals move from points of extraction to, to final export, uh, those capacities tend to be viewed as limited. But others have also argued that in certain uh, high value minerals, uh, for instance, uh, gold has recently been discovered in Zambia, and then we, we've had uh, some small scale emerald uh, miners. In terms of who gets to own a license uh, uh, for the, the lucrative uh, uh, areas, issues of corruption still prop, crop up there where you find that the politically connected indeed end up being the ones to, to hold licenses. This was seen even in the late 1980s where uh, Miku mine, one of the first uh, discovered uh, the first discoveries of emerald mines in Zambia was uh, was taken was taken up in terms of the the initial mining licenses that were issued to small scalers by a certain political elite, and uh, it has also been uh, been argued by by many that in terms of uh, a gold mining, the the reason that gold mining is very recent and so it's still in the process of being formalized, but then there's been lags and false starts. And so it has also been argued that certain political elites tend to benefit from keeping the sector temporarily disorganized or at least disorganized to the point where uh, they can continue extracting and exporting without, without facing uh, accountability charges. So we do see uh, degrees to which uh, uh, these are aspects of corruption manifest uh, to that extent in terms of discretionary uh, regulation and application of, uh, of uh, of formalization in the sector, but also in terms of maybe some of the, the challenges that are, are faced by, by miners at the bottom in terms of trying to ensure that their, their mineral is exported. There might be petty corruption uh, at that level as well, uh, where they try to, try to ensure that, uh, that maybe they, they get uh, minerals out of the country uh, without, uh, without paying the, the requisite taxes, in which the government has allowed the community to engage in. And so uh, in terms of uh, news of, of serious bribery, it was more dishonesty on the part of small scale mining in terms of reporting, because they knew that the government does not directly monitor the sector. Therefore, they could make internal arrangements to claim that they had zero production when in actual fact they were producing and um, getting into their own informal arrangements. To, to, to hand the, the mineral over to a foreign investor who then exports it. But then even for the foreign uh, investor, he has to get it out through the border. So that, that introduces uh, another, another regulatory point which, which they have to pay for. So it's, um, it's a bit of a mixed bag in terms of uh, the ASM sector. Um, 
the informality uh, tends to be linked to a desire to keep getting rents from the sector informally by political uh, elites. But then there's also petty corruption that happens as miners try to get around regulations that would otherwise be constrictive to their activities. That's interesting. So really, that, that whole notion of capacity to regulate and uh, the absence of political interest is key in making all of these interventions, whether it is in the small uh, artisanal mining area or for that matter in the large scale. Well, Agatha, that was immensely helpful. Thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Uh, I have found our conversations very informative. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on, Sheila.